Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Well, the French Catholic novelist Léon Blois famously said that the only real sadness, the only real failure, the only real tragedy in life is not to be a saint. What he meant by that was that, I think, that was that God has revealed himself to us. He's blessed us with all the blessings that we need. He's given us the incredible gift of his son Jesus and the good news. He's poured it all out on us. And to not embrace this is a tragedy. To not drop our nets and follow Jesus is a huge waste. In fact, it's the greatest sadness. Some people think sadness comes from not having the career you dreamed of or the marriage you dreamed of or the possessions you dreamed of. But really, according to this author and poet, the ultimate sadness is to squander your life on anything less than God revealed to us in Jesus and made present to us in the Holy Spirit. This is to miss out on true life. And sadly, many Christians, many people who call themselves Christians, experience a form of this sadness. They live their life, perhaps even coming to church sporadically, being a member of a church. And while they have said in principle a yes at one point in their life to Jesus, while there might have been a time when they were really actively involved in ministry, yet they never grow into maturity of faith. And this leads to a kind of a sadness. And friends, I don't want you to be sad. I don't want you to be sad. 
I want you to know Jesus and the depth of the love that he has for you. I want all of you to become wise as you get older. Some middle-class Christians get more selfish as they get older. They get to retirement and they've built up all this money and they spend it on going on cruises. And their, and their accumulated wealth they use to give themselves this new hedonistic lifestyle that they didn't used to have. Or some Christians get older and they become bitter and twisted or disillusioned as they experience pain and struggle. Some become increasingly cynical as they, their life doesn't go the way they thought it would. But others become sages. You know what I mean by that? Like they, they become deep, deep and wise because of what God has done in their life. And this is the calling of the book of Ephesians, which we are going to preach through over the next two months. The calling of the book is to walk in the way of Jesus, through the good times, through the hard times, to take the road less travelled, to keep going when you feel like giving up, and to do all of this in God's power. There's a pivotal verse in the book of Ephesians which presents a metaphor. And the word at the middle of this sentence in Greek is axios, which serves as this metaphor. And it translates as a word, worthy. It's in chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I, this is Paul speaking, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. It's, it's describing here two things of equal value. You imagine um, the, you know, the scales with the... Um, the plates either side and doing this, and you put a one kilo weight on one side and then you put a bag of flour on the other side. When it's evened out, you know you've got a kilo of flour. Well, in the axios scales in the book of Ephesians, the two things being balanced out are God's calling and human living. It's God's calling and the walk of the Christian life. God has called us to live holy lives, lives of justice, lives of love. And so Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus, how are you going living that life? I want you to live that way. Eugene Peterson writes, when our walking and God's calling are in balance, we are whole. We are living maturely, living responsively to God's calling, living congruent with the way God calls us into being, axios, worthy, mature, healthy, robust. We all want maturity. We want it in all kinds of ways. We want to experience physical and psychological, biological maturity. When we begin, think back to three-year-old kinder if it, or four-year-old kinder. I don't think three-year-old kinder existed when I was that age, but it is, does exist for so many of the kids now. Uh, you, you, you normally have the psychological maturity of a three-year-old at three-year-old kinder. So, when our mum drop, drops us off and waves goodbye on that very first day, we miss her. We feel betrayed that she would leave and we start sobbing and banging the floor and the snot pours out of our nose into our mouth because we're so offended that our mother should leave us. But then hopefully 15 or so years later, when, we're, when we leave school and we go and do our apprenticeship, we walk up, we walk up to you know, the, the building site to start our apprenticeship we don't have our mum drop us off. We don't, we don't cry uncontrollably because we've matured psychologically in that time. We also help to mature, hope to mature biologically, don't we? As a three-year-old kinder, you need to sleep in the middle of the day. You need a reminder to do your wheeze and poos. You know, this is what happens when you're three. But hopefully by the time you started your apprenticeship, 
No one needs to remind you to do those things. We grow up psychologically, biologically, but hopefully we also grow up spiritually as well. And this doesn't necessarily coincide with our biological age. Rather, it's measured from the time we are born again. We are born when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. This is the language Jesus uses to Nicodemus. He says, you can't enter or see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. But the Christian life doesn't stop at birth. It's not where it stops. You then go on living. When John the Baptist was born, Luke tells us in the Gospel of Luke, the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly. About Jesus, Luke said, after his birth, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in divine and human favour. John the Baptist had to mature spiritually, Jesus had to mature spiritually, and so do you. So in Ephesians 4 verse 11, Paul writes, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In our family, we've started listening to the book tape of The Hobbit. It's, it's actually one of those BBC dramatised versions from the 70s, so it's like really weird sound effects and stuff, but it's cool. And um, we're trying to get through The Hobbit so that we can get to The Lord of the Rings. But in The, in the, in the Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, you have these two extreme characters. You have the immature Gollum, once a hobbit called Smeagol, who becomes so bitter and twisted that, because he's obsessed with the one ring, that he turns into a pitiful creature called Gollum. He's willing to do anything to possess that ring, including betraying his friends, compromising his principles, and he becomes isolated and desperate until his ultimate death, which you'll have to read the book to find out how that happens. Uh, at the other extreme, Tol Tolkien presents Gandalf, the wizard who's a, a mentor and a guide to others. He provides wisdom to those who seek it and is willing to make sacrifices himself for the greater good. Gandalf famously says in the Fellowship of the Ring, um, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. So what are you going to do with the time that's been given to you by God? Don't be sad. Don't be a golem. Be a Gandalf. This is what Ephesians is about. It's going to show us how to avoid becoming golem and how God has given us everything we need to become Gandalf. We will look at the importance of holiness. We'll look at the importance of relationships to the people around us, the people we work with, the people in our house, how we protect ourselves against spiritual attack and make ourselves spiritually strong. All of this points to the mature life of the Christian, living the life that's worthy of the calling that God has placed on us. Not being sad, but being happy in Christ. And a really important thing it shows us is that growing to maturity and living the life worthy of this calling does not come by working really hard. It doesn't come by doing more and, or by striving and stressing out. If you strive and stress out, you'll become Gollum. It comes by what we're going to call for this series practicing resurrection. So let me talk about practicing resurrection. What do I mean by practicing resurrection? Well, in a one sense, it's just um, another way of looking at the phrase living the Christian life from a different angle. 
But it's bringing to the surface certain things which are really important that come out in the book of Ephesians. Now, I know that as I talk about practicing resurrection, you might feel a little bit frustrated, and through this series you might feel frustrated, because when we talk about practicing resurrection, we can't just give you three easy steps. That's what we want often. We want the three steps. What do I have to do when I go home? The three steps to practice resurrection. We're not going to be able to do that. Practicing resurrection, it's a mysterious thing. It's a more of a, a way of being than a way of doing. Let me, let me try and explain to you what I mean. We've got the whole series to explain, but let me try and explain. So I, I've, I've stolen the phrase from Eugene Peterson's book, Practicing Re- Resurrection, which is about the book of Ephesians. He says that if we look to the resurrection of Jesus as the foundation for the mature Christian life, then we are pointed in the right direction. So that's where it begins. He says, if we read through the stories of the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospels, we're presented with a few really important truths that stop us from trying to control our own process of growing into maturity. The first truth we're faced with is that the resurrection occurred without our help, without human help or our understanding. We, we did nothing. And so Peterson says this should pre- prevent us from trying to control or take charge of our own growth as Christians. For us to practice resurrection is to allow God to do the work. Secondly, the more we meditate on the resurrection, the more mysterious we realise it is. So this holds us back from anticipating it too tightly or defining it too tightly. Eugene Peterson writes, we live our lives in the practice of what we do not originate and cannot anticipate. When we practice resurrection, we continuously enter into what is more than we are. When we practice resurrection, we keep company with Jesus, alive and present, who knows where we are going better than we do, which is always from glory unto glory. One way we could think about, just get a bit of a taste of what practicing resurrection is about, is to think simply about sin and obedience, In Romans 6, Paul writes that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. He says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. We experience this unity with Christ in lots of daily deaths and resurrections. We sin, we put to death that sin, we repent, we pick ourselves up in the knowledge that God has already forgiven us and we move forward. This is one way of thinking about practicing resurrection for our sin life, is to be alive in God. Through this process, God matures us. We grow up spiritually. Maturity of faith doesn't come in our sin life from fierce control, like we're an extreme bodybuilder or a concert violinist who spent years just like violently whipping their body into shape. No, is a mystery to it. God does the work. Often you don't even realise what he's doing. Five or six years ago, I remember I was going through a period of my life where I was feeling discouraged in my faith and I was even considering whether or not I should continue in ministry. And I had an old friend come and visit me. He knew me very well. He's a strong Christian. And after hanging out for a bit, we went out for lunch and I remember saying to him that I didn't feel very confident in my faith. I I, I was struggling. I didn't think I was becoming more Christ-like. Rather, I felt like I was going backwards and it was making me feel distressed. And I asked him if he saw any change 
in me over the previous five or, or ten years. He'd known me a long time. And he smiled and he said that he could see so much change and growth. He said I was a completely different person to the one he remembered ten years earlier. He could see God working in me in a way that I couldn't see. And boy, did I need that encouragement. It really lifted me out of the psychological hole, the dark hole that I'd been in. I felt affirmed. I felt assured, encouraged, renewed. That lunch was an experience of practicing resurrection. It was a little moment of resurrection. In the last chapter of um, Makoto Fujimura's book, Art and Faith, which we've talked about a little bit in the last few months, there's a, the last chapter of the book is called Lazarus Culture, and he talks about practicing resurrection in this book as a way of orienting ourselves towards a resurrection that God is already making happen. And his focus is to do this with bringing glory to God through creativity and beauty. He says that practicing resurrection is the daily intentional living in hope that we see as we wait for Easter morning. Part of living in hope for Easter Sunday is also living in the despair of Easter Saturday. On Holy Saturday, we have no idea what God is doing, but we wait and we wait and we trust in God. And it's his space that Fujimura makes his art waiting for God's light to shine through. So for him, practicing resurrection is a way of doing the Christian life in this dark and broken world. It is what happens when God's kingdom power breaks through in our lives. Perhaps another way of thinking about practicing resurrection is to be an agent of God's peace and love and light. In the 1980s, uh, we used to sing in our church, I'm pretty sure every second week, the song, Make Me a Channel of Your Peace. Hands up if you sang that song. Listen to these words. Make me a channel of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring your love. Where there is injury, your pardon, Lord. And where there's doubt, true faith in you. Make me a channel of your peace. Where there's despair in life, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, only light. And where there's sadness, ever joy. O Master, grant that I may never seek so much to be consoled as to console to, under, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love with all my soul. Friends, the pathway to maturity and faith, the pathway to living the life worthy of the calling that God has placed on us, is to practice resurrection, is to orient our life towards Jesus' resurrection, is to experience Jesus' resurrection in our daily lives, is to be caught up in the ongoing ripple effect of the power of Jesus' resurrection, which is bringing light to this world. And there's good news here, and this is in the opening like, pray, glorious praise that we get in Ephesians chapter 1, and that is that God has provided everything we need to be able to do this. He has set us in place in his resurrection cosmos. He's created all the conditions required so that you can live this life. Ephesians 1, 4 to 17, it's this incredible poem of praise. It's like, it's actually one long sentence. It's like Paul can't say it fast enough. He's so excited. He tells of God's glory and what God has done for us. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he keeps going. He says, in God's resurrection cosmos, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Everyone from Adam and Eve and Abraham through to David and Mary experience God's goodness and love pouring out on them in blessing. But in God's resurrection cosmos, 
because of the salvation provided through Jesus, death and resurrection, every blessing from God has been made available to us. Nothing is held back. Paul says in this, in this, in this opening statement of praise that he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You might think you chose Jesus, and you did in one sense, but only because he chose you before the beginning of time. And this is crucial as we think about growing into maturity. The mature Christian knows that they're a Christian, not because of their performance as a spiritual person, but because God chose them. And so they're forever grateful and humbled. So whether you like it or not, if God has chosen you, you are to be holy. You've been chosen to be holy, set apart. This is God's purpose for you. This is how you're meant to be. This is God's will. He has chosen you to bring him glory, which you will do now and in eternity. In a similar way, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Your life is not an accident. God has a plan and it involved bringing you into his family. You have direct access to God. You have salvation and forgiveness of sins. And as sons and daughters, you have family responsibilities. You have to imitate your Father in heaven. This is God's resurrection cosmos. All of this has been freely given to us, says Paul, even though we don't deserve it. In fact, he says the word, he lavished it on us. Paul uses the word lavish, like I think it's like 70 times in the New Testament it's used. He blurts it out. He paints it gold. He adds fireworks in a brass band. He says, God is just like, he's giving it all to you. Eugene Peterson says, in matters of God's grace, hyperboles are understatements. It's a great line. Look at verse 8b. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. In God's resurrection cosmos, we aren't left guessing. He has revealed to us everything we need to know. All this is to show that God has got this covered. He's got this for us. We don't grow into maturity of faith through our own impressive efforts. The beginning of becoming mature is by realising this was never our idea, but God's idea. He chose us. He called us into his family. We grow into maturity by drawing on the blessing and the revelation and grace that God has already provided us. We grow into maturity by realizing the mystery of Jesus' resurrection and knowing that this, that his mysterious resurrection power is at work in you already right now. We grow into maturity by practicing resurrection. So let me pray for us that over these next two months, we learn how to do that. Heavenly Father, thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead and that you did it quietly in a garden without fanfare and that Jesus wrapped up his funeral clothes, put it in a pile and walked out into the garden and met Mary. And that mysterious power that did that to him is at work in us. We pray that we can grow into mature Christians and live the life worthy of the calling that you've placed on us. Amen.